We have seen that the Epistle to the Ephesians falls into two main sections, chapters 1 to 3 being a revelation of doctrine, and chapters 4 to 6 being the outworking of that doctrine in practice. The passage which is before us particularly this evening is a part of the opening section which we have called, just for the title, the Charter of the Church. And it occupies Ephesians 1 verse 3 to verse 14. The subdivisions are evident because you find in verse 6 and in verse 12 and in verse 14 a refrain that is repeated unto the praise of the glory of his grace or unto the praise of his glory. Well, we have tried to uh, give these sections their distinctive character by inventing three titles. They are human, you can pass them by if you wish, but they may be useful. The first, verses 3 to 6, we call the will of the Father. Verses 7 to 11 or 12 is the work of the Son. And verses 13 and 14, the witness of the Spirit. Well now we come to the will of the Father. And we've already looked in earlier studies at the unique blessings which are indicated in verse 3, all spiritual blessings, or every blessing that is spiritual. We see the unique sphere in which these blessings are to be enjoyed, in heavenly places. And I think in our earlier study, we looked at the five occurrences of this phrase in Ephesians, and that exhausts its reference in the whole of the Bible. Nowhere else in the whole word of God do you read the expression, in heavenly places, except in Ephesians. It is where Christ sits at the right hand of God. That is something unique. No believer ever had revealed to him as a ground of expectation that he would be blessed where Christ sits at the right hand of God. No believer was ever told that he was to reckon not only that he died with Christ or was raised with him, but that he was potentially seated together in heavenly places. So these things are standing out in all their glorious uniqueness, and we pass on to the next expression. That also is unique. We find it in verse 40. According as he has chosen us in him, before the foundation of the world. Those of you who know your Bibles, you know that there is a phrase that is found in a number of passages from the foundation of the world. But this is the only occurrence of this expression as it relates to believers. There are two other passages that speak of Christ himself. We'll look at them all in turn. Shall we acquaint ourselves, first of all, with the passages which speak of from the foundation of the world? since the foundation of the world, so that by comparison and contrast we may learn the peculiar character of this choice in verse 4. We turn first of all to Matthew 13. And there we have a mystery, not the mystery of Ephesians, but nevertheless a mystery. The rejection of the king, which has become very evident, led to the revelation of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Whenever you've got the mysteries of an enemy at work, as you find in the very parable. 
and the postponement of that kingdom is a part of the mystery that is revealed here. In verse 35 of this chapter we read that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet saying, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter things which have been kept secret from or since the foundation of the world. And then if you'll turn on to chapter 25 of this same gospel, where we have the revelation of the Lord when he returns and sits upon the throne of his glory and judges the nations as sheep and goats, we have in verse 34, Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from or since the foundation of the world. The next reference is in the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 11, verse 15. And it's an important one, as you'll see in one sense. Luke 11, 15. Verse 49 says, Therefore also said the wisdom of God, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they shall slay and persecute. But the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from or since the foundation of the world, may be required of this generation from the blood of Abel, from the blood of Abel. So since the foundation of the world must go back at least to Genesis 4. So here we have the martyrdom of Abel. Now, if this were our only subject, these passages which deal with from or since the foundation of the world, I think we should begin to realise that there were certain purposes of God that were brought forward by him in his wisdom and grace, consequent upon the attack of the false seed came upon the true seed, Abel. We can carry that with us because it will go back in the earlier period too. Only of course not with Abel and Cain, but nevertheless with the great enemy that was there very much in evidence. Uh, Hebrews is the next passage, chapter 4, verse 3. I think it would be wise to just canvas all these passages first, so that we've got them well before our mind. Hebrews 4 verse 3. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from or since the foundation of the world. And then with regard to the offering of Christ, Hebrews 9, verse 25 and 26. For yet nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. So there we have the offering for sin introduced. And the last references are in the book of the Revelation, chapter 13, verse 8. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of the life of the man's name from the foundation of the world. The revised version reads as it should, not that the man was slain from the foundation of the world, but it was the book that was written that belonged to the man that was slain. It was written since the foundation of the world. So we have a book written 
with names in it since the foundation of the world, we now come to Ephesians 1 to discover that there is the equivalent of a book written with names in it before the foundation of the world. Well, if we're going to believe that God means what he says and uses words with discretion, we shall say, well, although we may not say there are two books, there are two departments. There was one series that started with Abel, because we go right back to Abel in connection with from the foundation of the world, and there's another series which was written before ever man was created at all, but known by God. Well, if that's the peculiar character of Ephesians, it doesn't really go back to Adam, as does the epistle to the Romans. It goes back before the foundation of the world, and stands completely unique in that sense. Well, now the next thing for us to do is to observe the other references in the New Testament which speak about a period before the foundation of the world, so that they may have their bearing upon Ephesians 1. The first passage is John 17. It is in the great prayer of our Saviour at the end of his life, the finish of his work upon earth. John 17, 24. Father, I will. Uh, this is nothing to do with our subject, but it's something so tremendously wonderful I pause for a moment. I think most of it would feel that it was approaching blasphemy if any saint of God on his knees in prayer should start saying to God, I will. How is it that this one says it with acceptance? And the only one in the whole range of scripture that ever dares to say it. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Now that's not the believer, that's Christ. Loved before the foundation of the world. Now when you come to 1 Peter chapter 1, and this is the last reference. First of Peter chapter 1, where he is speaking of Christ set forth as the land. Verse 19, the precious blood of Christ as of a land without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Now, will you bring those two together in your mind? What it says of Christ in the two passages is that he was loved and that he was without blemish. Now, will you come back to Ephesians 1, and read what it says about you and me if we belong to this calling. Verse 4. Chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame, that's the word without blemish, in love. The very two words which are used of Christ in John 17 and 1 Peter are used of us in him. He was loved, we are loved. He was without blemish, we are without blemish, only of course in him. Now isn't that a staggering thought, to think that that's embedded in these references? Now these are the unique references, the only passages which take you back before the foundation of the world. Well now the next thing is, to discover if we can, 
why we go back before the foundation of the world. What's it all about? And here we have to do some sorting out. The Apostle Paul, when he wants to speak about a foundation, like he does in Corinthians, other foundation can no man lay, when he's speaking of a building, he has a word which, without the possibility of doubt, does mean the building, a uh, foundation, upon which a building rests. And you'll find it in Ephesians 2. Verse 20. He's speaking about a building. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now, supposing you say, now it's no good talking to me about Greek. No, but you're intelligent people. And you can see a word, so I'm going to write it on the board. The word kenelion is the word that definitely means a foundation upon which a building rests. When you come to Ephesians 1 verse 4 and read before the foundation of the world, well it's natural, if you're just an English reader, to suppose that the same word foundation is there. But I'll put it on the board again so that you can see what word is in Ephesians 1 verse 4. Now you needn't be Greek scholars to know that there's no, no affinity between those two words. Tevelion is the foundation in the sense of building, but Tekaboni must be something different. Why did the Apostle choose that word then instead of the ordinary one if he meant a foundation in the accepted sense? The way in which we can get an idea of the meaning of this word, is first of all to discover the way he uses the verbal form, catabello, in the New Testament, and then to see how that is used in the Greek version of the Old Testament. Because, you see, the Greek version of the Old Testament was in common use for nearly 300 years before the New Testament was written. And if that word occurs over and over again as it does, well then, to bypass that and say you prefer the way in which some pagan philosopher happened to use the word is rather to shut your eyes against truth. First of all, the way in which the apostles used this word catabello. 2 Corinthians 4. Verse 8 and 9. We are troubled on every side, but not distressed. We are perplexed but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Passed down, catabello, but not destroyed. He's an earthen vessel, friends. He tells you so in verse 7. And most earthen vessels, when they're cast down, they are definitely destroyed, but he was supported by wondrous grace. But cast down, catabello. If you want to confirm the evidence, it is found in the book of the Revelation when Satan was cast down out of heaven, when the war took place between Michael and his angels, and the devil and his angels. Cast down. Well now to become to the Old Testament, and there are 29 occurrences of Catabello in the Old Testament. 
And I've looked at every one of them. And every one of them refer to smashing the walls of a building, grinding something to powder. There is not one instance that ever means a foundation upon which you're building. It's always destruction. But I'll give you just two or three, perhaps three, of these many passages in the Old Testament. 2 Samuel, verse 20, uh, chapter 20, verse 15. 2 Samuel 20, verse 15. And they came and received him in Abel of Bethmarca, and they cast up a bank against the city, and it stood in the trench. And all the people that were with Jaleb battered the wall to throw it down. And you can see in the British Museum those wonderful slabs that decorated the palace of the Assyrian on its battering rams doing this very thing. This isn't building. This is destroyed. And I looked up the equivalent Hebrew word to see if this, this was in harmony. And the Hebrew word is the word nafal, which gives us the word nefeg in the fallen ones. It's all on one note all the time. Will you look at Psalm 106? Psalm 106, verse 26 and 27. Therefore he lifted up his hand against them to overthrow them in the wilderness, to overthrow their seed also among the nations, and to scatter them in their lands. Yes, it is definitely translated, to overthrow them. And if you prefer the margin, to make them fall. In any case, it doesn't mean to build them up. It meant to scatter. And the last reference I give you, 3 out of 29, is Ezekiel Chapter 26. Ezekiel chapter 26, verse 4. And they shall destroy the walls of Tyrus, and break down her towers, and I will scrape her dust from her, and make her like the top of a rock. Well, you can... If you could make that founding and building, you're a magician. Destroy, break down, scrape, and make it like the top of a rock. There. Well now, that is the consistent way in which, which this word is translated. Therefore we are compelled, if we're honest, not to translate Ephesians 1, as the authorised version have done, but say, chosen in him before the overthrow of the world. Well, we made so far, so good. But then you may say, well, now where are we? What do we mean by the overthrow of the world? Oh, when did that take place? Well, we must now turn to the Old Testament, and we've got to go back to the first chapter of the book of Genesis. I'd like to pause for a moment here, and just think of the superficial criticism which is sometimes passed on the work we do here and the publications we have to our name. That we have no concern with the teaching of the Bible generally. All we are concerned about is four little epistles. You see? Like that. 
But you and I know as well as anything that we cannot be concerned with those four written epistles without soon being concerned with all scripture from Genesis to Revelation. We need it all. It doesn't mean to say we find our calling all over the scriptures. We believe that we must rightly divide the word of truth, but it is a very great misrepresentation of those who seek honestly to follow the whole teaching of the word of God and believe it all, to just warn somebody that if you go to that particular place, they have nothing more to teach you than found in the four prison epistles. Thank God we haven't. But what is found in those four epistles means a lifelong search of the whole word of God from one end to the other. Now then, Genesis 1. We all know how this wonderful opening uh, commences. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. It might be interesting for you to know that strictly speaking, you have to omit the word the. I won't build too much upon this, but we'll just notice it and read it again. In beginning. And don't you see that makes your mind say, oh, in beginning, God did this. That means to say he was going on to do something else. Yes. This was the stage being set. He had in mind before ever this was laid down a new heavens and a new earth where he dwelt righteousness when all the question of sin and redemption should have been wrought out and finished. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning. Then when we come to the last book of the Bible, and we are, we are supposed to have read every chapter in the Bible before we get to the book of the Revelation, when we get to the book of the Revelation, we discover that the title of Christ is the beginning of the creation of God. Thus says the Amen, the beginning of the creation of God. Well, here's the subject opening up for you. So that you see, we dare not look upon any of these passages as trifles. The next thing I would like you to do with your Bible open in front of you is to observe verse 2. Would you notice the word was in the first line, and the earth was without form and void? And would you notice the word was in the next sentence, and darkness was upon the face of the deep? Now, if you have a fairly proper, well-printed Bible, you will have the word was printed in ordinary type in the first occurrence, and it will change to italic type in the second occurrence. And that goes on right through the Bible. Now, if you've ever done anything with regard to typesetting, or writing a book for printer, or correcting it when it's done, you know, these things are enough to drive you crazy. And yet they've gone to the trouble to keep on alternating their type. Sometimes they print it one way, sometimes the other. Why? The reason is this, that in the Hebrew language, there is no actual word for the verb to be, was, is, and. It's always assumed and nothing is written. But when it is written, it's the verb to become. Not the verb to be. You find this word as an illustration for us in chapter 2, Genesis 2, verse 7. And the Lord God formed man in the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. Nobody in his senses would want to alter that and say that man 
had been an, all the time a living soul, he became a living soul, consequently, upon the breath of life entering into him. Or would you get another example? Chapter 19. We don't know what husbands called their wives, or perhaps before they were married, when they were sweethearts in those early days. But I'm positive that Lot never said to whatever his wife's name was, she's never named in scripture, you know. She's always called Lot's wife, that's all. But whatever her name was, he never said, oh, you lovely bar of salt. No, no. She became a pillar of salt in judgment. She became. She wasn't before. Well, now, there are two examples out of hundreds. So, should we come back to Genesis 1? Is the word was printed in ordinary type? Yes. Then it's the verb to become, not the verb to be. Well, let's put it then. And the earth became without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. So, you see, there is one school of thought which says, that God created the world in a chaotic, confused mess, and after millions of years swirling round and round and round, there slowly evolved planets and suns and moons and stars, and ultimately fish and flesh and fowl, and finally even marvellous you and me. I remember when I was at school, the teachers started telling us all about this going whizzing round and round and round, and I believe I got into trouble for asking who started it to go round. It's a legitimate question, isn't it? Suppose we look at it the other way. In the beginning, there was a perfect creation. Heaven and earth. Then something happened. Now you see, the scientific mind says, you're wrong, nothing ever happens. That's what Peter was dealing with in the passage we read just now, 2 Peter 3. He says these coppers say all things continue as they were since the beginning of creation. Said Peter they're wrong. Not only would he refer to this, he would refer to the flood in the days of Noah. He would refer to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> he would refer to the overthrow of Pharaoh in the Red Sea and multiple cases where God did intervene. And they didn't all go straight on. He says they're willingly ignorant of this. And so he says, there will be another interference with the ordinary course of things when the second coming of Christ takes place. But that's what they're using it against, you see. So here we have a chaos, something following a creation. And the earth was without form and void. These two words are put on the board, so that you may look them up, if you will, tell you and bone you. Two words are written on the board, Tohu and Bohu, are the words translated without form and void. Now there's one principle in the scriptures which is more important than looking up a dictionary. If you look up a dictionary, you get the general meaning of a word and you get its etymology and so on, but you must also know its current usage. Otherwise, you may be using a word which had one meaning two or three hundred years ago, which has an entirely different connotation in the present day. 
it would be no good you defending yourself when you called a person a villain, pretending to look in the dictionary and find that was a man who lived in a villa or in a village. They wouldn't give you time, you see, because you were not exercising ordinary common sense. Words change. Well, now we read in Corinthians that we should compare spiritual things with spiritual, and it includes the words which the Holy Ghost teaches. Now, I believe the Holy Ghost used these two words in Genesis. He used them again in Isaiah. He used them again in the book of Jeremiah. Don't you think it would be wise for us to see how he used them before we come to a conclusion? Let's do so. Jeremiah chapter 4. And here in the authorised version, we have no need to retranslate, for they've used exactly the same words that we find in Genesis 1 verse 2. <coughs> Jeremiah 4. Verse 23. I beheld the earth, and lo, it was without form and void, and the heavens they had no light. I beheld the mountains, and lo, they trembled, and all the hills moved lightly. I beheld, and lo, there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens were fled. I beheld and know the fruitful places of wilderness, and all the cities of the Lord were broken down at the presence of the Lord, and by his fierce anger. Is there any idea in those verses of creation? Surely fierce anger is judgment. Well, that's the way Jeremiah picks up the two words that we find together in Genesis 1, 2, and uses them again. Shall we accuse him of misleading us? Shall we say he deliberately used them in order to confuse us? But then we are, we are not merely charging this upon Jeremiah. We are charging this upon God, who said, I'll put, put my words into thy mouth, Jeremiah. So I believe with all my heart that we have a key here, that the words without form and void belong to judgment and not creation. All right. We'll come now to the prophecy of Isaiah. Chapter 45. Chapter 45 of Isaiah, verse 18. For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it. That's a good introduction, isn't it? It doesn't say, thus saith Professor so-and-so, who has written a book about creation. Well, that's one thing. But when you listen to the one who made it, surely he's going to tell us, straightforward and true. Right, let's start again. For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, he hath established it, he created it not in vain. Now those words, in vain, are the words that we find in Genesis 1, verse 2. He created it not told you. Whatever it means, he created it not like that. Well, then it must have become like that. He created it, he formed it to be inhabited. And if you will notice in chapter 24, there are one or two other words in the context that will help us to see that this without form and void is not a very stable condition to live in. 
24.1 Behold the Lord maketh the earth empty and maketh it waste and turneth it upside down. Well I think if I lived in the world of the being turned upside down I should say friend instead of saying founded you ought to say confounded and you'll be nearer the truth. Or when you look again in this same chapter 24 verse 3 the man shall be utterly emptied, utterly spoiled, for the Lord hath spoken this word. And again in verse 10, the city of confusion. That word confusion is Tosia, the one we've been looking at in Genesis 1. So an earth which is turned upside down is likened to a city of Tosia or confusion, not creation, but judgment or chaos. And again in verse 19, the earth is utterly broken down. The earth is clean dissolved. The earth is moved exceedingly. And in verse 21, And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall punish the host of the high ones that are on high and the kings of the earth upon the earth. Here's a little light coming in. Who are these high ones that are on high? Do you remember we were looking at before the, the since the foundation of the world we went back to the slaughter of Abel at the hand of Cain, the two seeds becoming involved in that enmity being manifest. Now we go back before ever the seeds were there. And we get into the realm of high ones that are on high. In other words, angels, principalities, powers, fallen spirits. And we're not, we're not uh, saying this without reference. We read in the epistle of Jude and in the epistle of Peter, the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own principality, he had confined under chains waiting for darkness. So the angels did rebel. They did leave their appointed place. And when we read the epistle to the Hebrews, it says, Unto the angels hath he not given this to rule the world to come. Oh no. That, what it seems to suggest he did give them some rule in some world that has passed away. And so we're now getting another glimmer that any calling, any uh, blessing, any company like the Church of the One Body, which was chosen before the foundation of the world, would have some relationship to heavenly places where principalities and powers were before they rebelled. That's what's beginning to grow before us. But we haven't quite finished this quest of the um, use of these two words. Now, Jeremiah, chapter, now we've looked at that, chapter 4, has used the two together, but Isaiah has used the two together in chapter 34. And they come in verse 11. Isaiah 34, verse 11. The four birds which are mentioned, the cormorant, the bittern, the owl, and the raven, are unclean birds. They're unclean in the teaching of Moses, and they're unclean in the estimate of nations as well. There comes to my mind the words in Macbeth, when Lady Macbeth has been plotting the murder of the king, she says, the raven himself is horse, that quotes, croaks the fatal entrance of Duncan under my battlements, the raven. Well, here are birds that are unclean, bad omen. They are going to dwell in this place. And he shall stretch out upon it the line of confusion and the stones of emptiness. Now, the word confusion and emptiness 
are the words in Genesis 1 verse 2, without form and void. Can you believe that God would lift out those words and put them in the mouth of Jeremiah and put them in the mouth of Isaiah in context which means judgment and vengeance and then say, but you're not going to take me at my word and believe it, are you? We say, yes, Lord, we are. Is Isaiah 34 a context of judgment and vengeance? Let's have a look. Verse 2. Let's look at the words in verse 2. Indignation. Fury. Utter destruction. Slaughter. Well, that's a good start, isn't it, for one verse. Look at verse 4. And all the host of heaven shall be dissolved. And the heavens shall be rolled together as a scroll. Why well, we read that in 2 Peter 3. Don't you see, friends? Another thing is now emerging. That at the beginning, when the ages commenced, there was a period called Tohu and Bohu, without form and void. And before the new heavens and the new earth come, there's another period before the new heavens with exactly the same sort of character. So we can see how the plan of the age is something like this. There's the Genesis 1 and there's 2 Peter 3. And this is the age in which we live. That's before and that's after. There's the pattern. We're in between those two. Again, would you look at verse 8 of this same chapter 34. For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance. The Lord's vengeance. So Jeremiah tells us, and Isaiah tells us, this is a day of judgment and not the day of creation. Uh, we are not so concerned in these meetings as to what scientific men say, because we are conscious that science has taken a turn of antagonism to the revelation of God's word. But we must be very careful not to sweep aside everything that is said, or every person that is a scientist, because, blessed be God, there are a few still left who believe the scriptures to be true. And one of them, I heard him speak, and uh, he gave one or two addresses at the Victoria Institute, which is the Philosophical Society of Britain. His name is Davies, I'll give him his full title, Lieutenant Colonel L.M. Davies, M.A., F.G.S., F.R.S.E., F.R.A.I., so he's got a few letters after his name anyhow. He says, I mistrust all attempts to treat the six days of Genesis as geological epochs instead of literal days. You know how the attempt has been made to get over apparent difficulty, so all, oh, it doesn't mean a day, it means Geological ages. Well, if that's the case, you have a geological age chopped in half. The first half is in sunshine. The second half is in darkness. If it only lasts a few million years in darkness, you wonder how the poor things manage to exist waiting for next morning. That doesn't seem very convincing. But he says further about the passage we are considering, Genesis 1 verse 2. Now, this geologist says this. As a geologist, and as a Christian, I see only one way of reconciling Scripture with the testimony of the rocks. And that is by taking the six days of Genesis as literal days. Days, there it comes. 
when a previously ruined world was restored and provided with, unfortunately, only temporarily, an ideal population. So there was a geologist speaking at the Victorian Institute and maintaining that Genesis 1 verse 2 was a ruined world and then the six days creation was God getting this world ready for man. It says in the third day, let the dry land appear. It didn't say let the dry land be created. Let it appear. And it did, it was beneath the waters. So we, you see, we do despite to the spirit of truth if we allow these people to get away with it. At least tell them to be scientific and read the book they're criticising. They generally criticise what they think it says without giving it the patient consideration that they would do if it was a part of their own domain. Well now, so far, where have we got? We've gone a long way from Ephesians 1, haven't we? Well, what's this got to do with Ephesians 1? Well, not even now we can say. Chosen in him, before the overthrow of the world, which is recorded in Genesis 1, verse 2. That's where the plan was made. That's where the one body of Christ was visualised. That's where the destiny was decided that some should occupy heavenly places where Christ now sits. And it is associated, you see, not with things on the earth, but with a rebellion and a fall which seems to have taken place before man was placed upon this earth at all. Well now, of course, the question may have to be considered how far are we justified in speaking of a rebellion or a fall associated with the angelic world. We don't want to leave it there, a raggedy end, and say, oh, well, you read Milton's Paradise Lost or something, because Milton was a poet and he may have drawn upon his imagination. So would you just give me a moment or two more and we'll consider this question. We'll turn once more to Second Peter, but this time the second chapter, not the third. 2 Peter, chapter 2. The fourth verse, for if God spared not the angels that sinned, well, he's not even telling you they did sin. Did sin. He's assuming it. And that's even a greater proof, generally. He doesn't say, now, beloved brethren, I want first to assure you that they did. He said, oh no, for if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into the chains of darkness, to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, and saved Noah the eighth person, then he links it all together as though it's an established fact in Scripture. Or should we turn to the next epistle, the epistle of Jude, the one that comes immediately before the book of the Revelation, the epistle of Jude, which traverses very much the same ground as Peter, with a little variation in phraseology. He says in verse 5, Jude, I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. And in verse 7, he refers to Sodom and Gomorrah, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So he's, he's referred to the people of Israel coming out of Egypt, 
to the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, and in between it he puts about the angels. Again, you see, so, so far as Jude is concerned, it's all historic fact. What does he say about the angels? And the angels which kept not their first estate, their principality, as the word is, but left their own habitation, oikitirion, the very word used as the resurrection body in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, they left their own oikitirion, they left their own proper body, condition, state, whatever it was, he had reserved in everlasting chains under darkness, under the judgment of the great day. And then, you know that at the end of time, when we are in the day of the Lord, the yet future day of the Lord, this warfare is brought to an issue, chapter 12 of the book of the Revelation. The book of the Revelation, chapter 12, verse 7. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon fought at his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent. That doesn't refer to his age. This is the word that means antiquity. The serpent of antiquity, Genesis 3, who is called the devil, Diabolos, Greek, and Satan, Hebrew, all one and the same person, linking them all together, which deceived the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And then if you will turn to Colossians, chapter 2, here we are dealing with our own calling, Colossians, referring to the dispensation of the mystery, like Ephesians. We read in Colossians 2, verse 14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, and in verse 16, let no man therefore judge you in meat or drink or in respect of a holy day, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come of the bodies of Christ. And in between, in between that state, those statements, he puts verse 15, and having spoiled principalities and powers, principalities and powers, these spiritual beings associated with heavenly places, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. So there are principalities and powers that were spoiled at the cross, not reconciled at the cross. The very still same cross that reconciles some, spoiled others. And then we come to Ephesians 6, where we have the armour of God, detailed for the believer in this calling, and says in verse 12, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. When we were dealing with the words in heavenly places, we drew your attention that the construction of this sentence demands that we put in brackets the words that follow flesh and blood and close them at the end of the word wickedness. Shall we read it again like that in case someone wasn't here when we did that before? Looking at verse 12. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood in heavenly places. We neither wrestle with flesh and blood, 
nor is there any war going on in heavenly places where Christ is at the right hand of God. But we do wrestle against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickednesses, but they're down here. Their prince is the prince of the power of the air, and it's here that the resting goes on, but not at the right hand of God. But that's not our point for a moment. Leave verse 12 as it stands, if you like. You still see the principalities and powers include some that are antagonistic to the believer. So Colossians says Christ is the head of principality and power, some principalities and powers, some angels are holy and unfallen, but some tell, some rebel, some are antagonistic, some have been spoiled, some have been put, put off and triumphed over. So that you see, there's no possibility of saying that Genesis 1 verse 2 cannot possibly have reference to a fall that took place before man because there's every, any amount of evidence that a fall did take place among angelic beings whenever it was, whenever it might be. And as angelic beings were on the spot before man was here, there's every likelihood that the overthrow and the judgment that brought about chaos the world that then was that were under their control perished. And then, when the moment came, God put a man on this earth made in his own image, a type and a shadow of Christ who was to come, and he was immediately attacked by a fallen being who appeared to him in the form of a serpent with a great power and deception. We come back then to Ephesians 1, and we say, here we have a revelation which we could never have discovered any other way but what God told us. That before the overthrow of the world recorded in Genesis 1 verse 2, he chose the poor, outside, alienated, Gentile descendant of Adam to be blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. He chose him that he should be holy and without blemish in love. He chose him that he should receive the adoption of sons and be accepted in the beloved. You and I are not going to barter this precious truth, merely for the sake of peace and quietness among some of our friends and neighbours. If we have to pay the price, we'll do it gladly. For here are riches beyond the dreams of avarice. Well now I want to go on with this. I feel that, that we dare not go through this rapidly and great strides. We're here dealing with those things which belong to our calling and our very peace. So if this evening has been occupied dealing with something which you knew already, some of you do know it, you've rejoiced in it for years, I trust you're only too glad that somebody else who has not had that opportunity has had the opportunity this evening. And if we send out greetings to those who will be using this recording presently, whom we may never see in the flesh here, but we'll remind them when we get to glory that we were already rejoicing together here in this high and holy calling revealed to us in this great epistle 